What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Jeremy Lowry. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about the NFL and all of their head coaching vacancies over the last three days. A lot of coaches have either been fired or mutually parted ways with their respective teams. So I'm going to give a breakdown of all of those coaches. And one of them that just happened today was Bill Belichick has parted ways with the New England Patriots. Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick both held a press conference today at noontime. Each of them talked for about five minutes and talked about obviously the great days and everything they did and everything they accomplished together. And obviously at the end of the day, even though this is the end of the Bill Belichick era, everything he did in New England obviously is going to be in the history books forever. And that's why obviously even though it was expected to some degree, it's still a shock at the end of the day. I expected Belichick and the Patriots to pot ways at the end of the season. But at the same time, it's still a shock considering Bill Belichick is no longer in New England. Tom Brady, when he left four years ago, that was a major shock. And now when Bill Belichick leaves the Patriots, that's even bigger of a shock just because within a four-year window, both guys are gone. And it seemed like their dynasty was just going to last forever when both those guys were here. And now they're both gone. And Belichick isn't the only coach that's out of his position now. There's a good amount that I'm going to break down, including one in college. That's Nick Saban, who just retired from his role as the head coach at Alabama. So I'll talk about Saban. I'll talk about Belichick. And then also Pete Carroll, who's in a similar class to Bill Belichick and Nick Saban. They're All three of them are over 70 years old. All the legendary coaches within the game of football. And they all had such success as coaches. Their combined college and NFL record between those three coaches is 923 wins, 416 losses, and two ties. 923 wins between those three coaches. Pete Carroll at USC, he was 97-19 as the head coach. And then in the NFL between the regular season and the postseason, he had 181 wins, 131 losses, and a tie. Bill Belichick in the NFL, 333 wins and 178 losses. All of those being combined between regular season and postseason. And then Nick Saban in the FBS as a college football coach. 297 wins, 71 losses, and a tie. With a 15-17 and 17 record in the NFL. Even though he didn't really work out in the NFL, still a very historic coach. And probably, in my eyes, the greatest football coach of all time. But you'll have that argument at the end. Who do you consider the greatest coach ever? Is it Belichick or is it Nick Saban? Who is the GOAT of football coaching? And that's obviously an argument that is going to be hard to answer. People are going to have their opinion. But at the end of the day, both coaches are great. It's obviously hard to compare. But both of them were very successful in their respective places. And the craziest part of all three of those guys being gone is that all three of them are gone from their respective roles within a 24-hour window. Nick Saban and Pete Carroll, they were just a few hours apart. And then this morning, Bill Belichick and the Patriots mutually part ways. And if you look at their ages, I mean, it's just crazy. Pete Carroll's 72 years old. Nick Saban's 72 years old. Bill Belichick's 71 years old. All three of them are in their 70s. And if Saban and Carroll want to continue to coach, they easily could. I know Belichick, it seems like he's going to keep coaching, which it makes sense that he would. But Nick Saban's stepping down, but he still could coach if he wanted to. I know he's retiring, but he still could coach if he wanted. And the same thing with Pete Carroll. He was still a good coach this season. And it seems like Pete Carroll wanted to stay coaching. It seemed like it was more of an ownership management decision for him to step down. Like they want to go in a different direction. And they said to Pete Carroll, it's either we fire you or we mutually part ways and you end up being in the front office. So it ends up being more of a mutually parting of ways from the coaching role there for P. Carroll, but he's going to end up being in the front office anyways, but it seems like it was more of an ownership decision or a management decision that they want to go in a different direction. As for the Patriots, Bill Belichick and the Patriots mutually agreed to part ways. So that was an amicable decision for both parties. They both decided it's best for us to go in different directions, and even though obviously the history you can't take away, and obviously all the success they've had, 
But like I said in my episode the other day, sports are all about a cycle of winning and losing. And the Patriots dynasty lasted two decades. So even if the ending wasn't that sweet, with no playoff wins over the last four seasons after Brady left, you still can't take away the six Super Bowl rings that Bill Belichick won when he was here. And according to Adam Schefter, this is a quote from an article he put out, there was said to be no conflict, no disagreement, and in the end, productive talks resulted in a mutual decision that left both sides comfortable and at ease. And per Adam Schefter as well, he also noted that they took the high road to resolve the differences, and they parted ways respectfully. So this could have went a different direction, where the Patriots could have traded Bill Belichick, which I thought was unlikely. I didn't think they were going to trade him. Just out of respect, they weren't going to fire him, and the same goes for trading. And if you look at it, who is going to trade Bill Belichick? He's the general manager. Was it going to be Robert Kraft making the decision and getting on the phone and trying to trade him? It wouldn't have made sense to trade him. Could they have gotten a draft pick back in return? Yeah, definitely. But it made more sense for them to mutually part ways rather than firing or trading him. And Belichick has expressed interest to continue coaching, which there was one year left on his deal with the Patriots. He's going to get that money, and he's going to continue to coach. So the big question is, where's Bill Belichick going to end up? And I'll get to that in just a few minutes, but I just want to break down all the accolades he had when he was here in New England. In 24 seasons, he was in the Super Bowl nine times. Nine Super Bowl appearances with six Super Bowl titles, a 30-12 and postseason record with a 266 and 120 regular season record. 266 regular season wins and 120 regular season losses in New England. With 17 division titles and 11 seasons of 10 or more wins. Double-digit wins and 11 seasons as a head coach in New England. Which is just ridiculous when you look at those numbers. Ridiculous. Nine Super Bowl appearances, six Super Bowl titles, and 266 regular season wins to 120 losses in the regular season. With 17 division titles, 17 to 24 years. So overall, between Cleveland and New England, Bill Belichick has 333 career wins between the regular season and the playoffs. He only needs 15 wins to overtake Don Shula as first all-time in career victories as a head coach in the NFL. So he's not too far off. 15 wins can be two seasons if he goes to a place that's in a good position to win right now. And there's going to be a lot of debate about where the best situation is for Bill Belichick. But there's two places that come to mind for me. I think Atlanta gives him the best chance to win within two years, 15 games, which he probably still wants to compete to win a Super Bowl. I mean, he's trying to win a Super Bowl without Brady just to get rid of the narrative that Brady's the only reason he ever won. So he's still looking to win games. It's not just trying to beat the record. He's also still looking to win a Super Bowl. But I think Atlanta gives him the best chance to be competitive right now. But I'll discuss that a little bit more in just a few minutes. Another crazy stat I saw, and this is from Paul Hembo of ESPN, since the Patriots hired Bill Belichick in 2000, the Patriots only had one head coach. While the rest of the NFL, over that window from 2000 to now, have had 162 head coaches and 224 total coaching since. So one head coach versus 224 since 2000, which is just ridiculous. And that obviously shows all the dominance in the whole entire dynasty the Patriots had for two decades. And a lot of the dynasty is accredited to Bill Belichick, but also Tom Brady. Tom Brady, when he was here, had so much success. And a lot of Bill's success is because of Tom Brady. But I'd say the same thing goes for Brady as well. Even though Brady did win a Super Bowl without Bill Belichick, it did help to have Belichick on his side for six Super Bowl rings. And then obviously he won a seventh one on his own, which proved that he could win on his own and he wasn't a system quarterback. But they did merge very well together. And they found ways to win games. But after the Tom Brady era in New England... The Patriots only had one playoff appearance in four years with three losing seasons and a 29 
and 38 record in the regular season since Brady left. Dating back for week 12 of last season in 2022, the Patriots were 6-18 and in their last 24 games. 6-18. and So obviously Brady was a big key to Belichick's success. But I still think Belichick is a good coach. The issue with Belichick right now in New England, his biggest issue isn't Belichick as a coach. His issue right now, where the Patriots currently stand, why they're in a tough position, is because of his decisions as the GM. A poor offensive line, a weak wide receiver group, not much depth, not the right quarterback. So a lot of the decisions that Belichick made as a general manager hurt him as a coach. And that's ultimately why I thought the Patriots were going to split ways with him. I never thought the Patriots would split ways with him as a general manager, but keep him as a head coach. It only made sense to go fully forward with him as both or get rid of him entirely. And I thought it made most sense for them to get rid of him entirely and step in a different direction. Even if that's hard to say, obviously, considering all the success he had in New England, every good thing does come to an end at the end of the day. And two decades of winning, obviously, is something no one can ever take away from Belichick or the Patriots. But as I said, though, his decisions as the GM hurt him as a coach. Drafting Nikhil Harry in the first round always loomed large. That was a big, big mistake by Bill Belichick. But obviously all that's in hindsight. It's tough to look back and say, I should have drafted this guy or I should have drafted that guy. Nobody knows at the end of the day when you draft a guy whether or not they're going to pan out. Because not every player is going to pan out that you draft. But Brady obviously wanted help at wide receiver and Nikhil Harry was supposed to be the answer. But he ended up being a big mistake there and a big miss. And that's a big reason the Patriots have had a bottom half offense in the NFL in three of the last four years since Tom Brady left. And now Belichick's free to go anywhere which I'll discuss in just a few moments after talking about all the head coaches, where I think is the most desirable location for a head coach to go right now that is on the open market. But before doing so, I'm going to move on to talk about Pete Carroll, who yesterday was announced out as a Seahawks head coach. He's going to be stepping into their front office, but it seemed like in his press yesterday that he still wanted to coach. And here's a listen to what he was saying yesterday in his press conference. Well, that's it for now. And, uh... I'm freaking jacked. I'm fired up. I'm not tired. I'm not worn down. Uh, you, you guys tried your best. You didn't wear me out. I'm, you know, it's the end of the season. I'm supposed to be, you know, go lay on a cot somewhere. I ain't feeling like that. And, uh, um, you know, there's what's coming. I don't know. I got no idea. And I really don't care right now. But uh, I do. Um, I'm excited about it because there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to study. Uh, there's a, there's some great discoveries that are going to come our way. And as my, my, all-time mentor Bud Grant said, not in so many words, uh, there's, there's rivers to wade, uh, there's ways to catch, and there's mountains to hike. And uh, it wasn't exactly how Bud said it, but uh, I get it. And uh, that's some cool stuff that we're going to do here. Um, and uh, I look forward to all that. So um, with that, go. What do you got? So there was Pete Carroll yesterday in his press conference. And it seems like he wanted to stay as the head coach. He's still jacked. He's still fired up. It seems like he's still interested in coaching. He still has the energy, obviously, and Seattle still had a competitive season this year in a tough division where there's two playoff teams, the Rams and the 49ers. They were still competitive this season. And in 14 years, they had a winning record in 11 of 14 seasons with Pete Carroll as a head coach in Seattle with a 606 win percentage over that run, which is actually the highest in Seahawks franchise history, as is his 137 total wins as a head coach in Seattle. Overall in 14 seasons... A 137-89 and 89 record, 137 wins, 89 losses, two Super Bowl appearances, and a Super Bowl ring. He also had 10 playoff wins since 2010, which was tied for third most among head coaches in the NFL since 2010. My immediate reaction when I saw that news yesterday, I thought it was a very, very surprising move. And it seems like Carroll wanted to stay coaching. But what I think it really came down to 
was a management and or ownership decision where they said, hey, we got to go in a different direction. So it's either we fire you or it's a mutually parting of ways and you can just step into the front office as an advisor. And the sad thing about Pete Carroll's career, obviously there's a lot of success, 137 wins in 14 years, but his career is always going to be looked at based on one play. And that was his decision to throw the ball on the goal line in the Super Bowl in Super Bowl 49, which ended up leading to Malcolm Butler's interception and handing the Patriots that win and just throwing the game completely away for the Seahawks. And now when you look back at hindsight, they should have given it to Marshawn Lynch on second down, but they should have given it to Marshawn Lynch on second down no matter what. Lynch should have got the ball on second down no matter what. And then maybe if you want to throw the ball, throw the ball on third down. But throw a fade route on third down. Don't throw a pass over the middle on a slant that can get deflected and picked off over the middle. And that obviously ended up costing Seattle their second Super Bowl ring. Like I said, though, people are always going to look back at that play. And I remember right after the play happened, how much criticism was sent the way of the Seattle Seahawks and obviously Pete Carroll as well. And I looked it up. Looked at a couple of reviews of that play right after the Super Bowl happened. Deion Sanders, Peter King, just about every single analyst on ESPN called it the worst play of all time. The worst play call of all time. And when you look back at hindsight, it really was the worst play call of all time. But the issue is this. In hindsight, it looks like the worst play of all time. But even in that moment, you got to think, let's run the ball on second down. We have one of the best running backs in the NFL, a very strong runner who's a bruising back that only needs to get a couple yards and he's in the end zone. And I know they were stopped on first down. Dante Hightower had a big tackle. But you still give it to Marshawn Lynch on second down. And I remember Chris Collinsworth saying, you can give it to Marshawn Lynch all four plays, and if it ends up not working, so be it. But if you're going to lose throwing the ball and getting picked, that's the worst case scenario. And that's definitely going to be the play that a lot of people are going to judge Pete Carroll's career on. But he's still a Hall of Fame coach and still a legendary coach at both levels, college and in the NFL. So now I'm going to transition and talk about Arthur Smith who was fired by the Atlanta Falcons after a 7-10 season. It was reported on December 14th that barring a late-season collapse, Smith would keep his job and be back next season. At that time, Atlanta was 6-7 and seven and did a three-way tie for first place in the NFC South, so he still had a chance at the playoffs. After that report happened, the Falcons lost three of their last four games, including losses to the Carolina Panthers in a game where they lost 9-7 to to the worst team in the NFL, and also lost by 20 points to the Chicago Bears. And also in Week 18, to close out the season, they lost by 31 points to the New Orleans Saints. 31 points. Losing three of their last four games to three teams that all missed the playoffs, with one of them being the worst team in the NFL in the Carolina Panthers. They lost four of their last five games, and that's what makes it easy for the Atlanta Falcons to go in a different direction. I do like Gotha Smith. I thought he was a great offensive coordinator for the Titans, a couple years ago, he was very good for them. They had one of the best offenses in the league, a very efficient offense, centered around Ryan Tannehill, and obviously being a run-dominant offense, running the ball consistently with Derrick Henry. That's the reason that offense moved the ball downfield, and then Tannehill was more of a game manager, but it worked, obviously. They were winning games. Tannehill, when he had to step up, he made some plays for them. And when I look at that Atlanta Falcons team last year at the end of the season, they were still playing hard at the end of the year, and they had a lot of one-score games that they lost. And I thought that was going to flip this season. I thought they were going to find a way to win a lot of those one-score games, and they were going to turn things around, win the division, and make the playoffs. But that obviously didn't end up happening. They really struggled this season. And unfortunately, Smith was my pick for coach of the year before the season began. Since I thought Atlanta would surprise some people, I thought they'd win the division, and I thought they were going to have a dynamic offense after taking Bajon Robinson with the 8th overall pick, I thought that offense was going to be rolling. But I was wrong. I was wrong. 
Atlanta only had three total road wins over the last two seasons. Three total road wins. They were a good team in Atlanta, but on the road they really struggled. And the Falcons offense averaged under 20 points per game over three years with Smith as the head coach. And that's even with drafting Kyle Pitts, Drake London, and Bajon Robinson all within the top eight of the draft in three consecutive years. Arthur Smith obviously really did well as a run-heavy offensive coordinator in Tennessee. That's why I thought Atlanta was going to take a step up this season. They got a workhorse back in Bijan Robinson, who I thought was going to be the offensive rookie of the year in the NFL. I saw big numbers out of him before the season began. And then when he steps up and he's in Atlanta and the regular season begins, it seems like they just fade him in the offense sometimes. And he wouldn't be as involved as he should be. And so that's obviously a big question mark for Arthur Smith's tenure. How do they not score more points with Robinson as the running back? And then also adding in Kyle Pitts, who was a top five pick, was one of the most talented tight end prospects over the last decade. And then also Drake London, who had a pretty good season overall, but it still wasn't enough to get this team over the hump. 7-10 and ten in three straight seasons with Arthur Smith as the head coach. 7-10 and ten in three straight years. So obviously Atlanta had to make a decision and go in a different direction. But I think this team, out of all the teams with head coaching vacancies right now, I think Atlanta is the most desirable location for a head coach right now. A very good offensive skill group, which I probably need one more wide receiver in the draft, but that should be easy to come by maybe in the second or third round. They still need a quarterback, which they can address that in free agency or with the eighth overall pick. And they also maybe need one or two more players on defense. But this team is in a good position right now to try to take a step up next year with the right head coach and the right quarterback. This team could be a dangerous team next year. So the next head coaching vacancy in the NFL is the Washington Commanders, who fired Ron Rivera after a 4-13 season. But this was one that wasn't very surprising. This was a move that was expected. Probably midway through the season, everyone expected the Commanders to move on from Rivera, so this wasn't really a surprising move. And if you look at the numbers, the Commanders had a bottom 10 defense and points allowed in two of the last three seasons. They allowed the most points in the NFL this year, with over 500 points allowed on defense. Which is crazy considering Ron Rivera is a defensive-minded head coach, and they did have some talent on that defensive line. There's still a lot of work to be done for this team, considering they traded a good amount of their pass rushes. They're going to have to revamp over the next couple seasons. But in two of the last three years, they had a bottom 10 defensive points allowed. With that being said, though, having to play Philadelphia twice a year and Dallas twice a year is obviously tough. And the Giants have found ways to beat the Commanders, it seems like, for the last five years. The Giants have beaten them consistently. So it's tough to play those teams two times a season for six total games. Overall, during his tenure in Washington, Rivera had a 26-40-1 record. 26 wins, 40 losses, and a tie for a 396 win percentage with one NFC East title and an 0-1 record in the playoffs. In his first year with Washington, they were 7-9 in 2020, won the division somehow, and then gave the eventual Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a game in the wild card round. So the start of the Ron Rivera era in Washington started out on a high note, and then they were third in the NFC East the following year with a 7-10 record. Then last year they were 8-8-1, fourth in the NFC East. 8-8-1, though, they were competitive last year. And then this season, 4-13, fourth in the NFC East, and giving up the most points in the NFL. So obviously a change was needed here in Washington. But obviously Rivera's a good guy with a great story. A lot of people are a fan of him. A lot of players that have played for him love him. But the franchise had to go in a different direction. And whoever's stepping in as the next head coach has a lot of assets to rebuild around, whether it's draft picks or some young players like Terry McLaurin, Brian Robinson. They have some pieces to build around. They do have a lot of work to do. They need to get the offensive line figured out. 
But there are some assets for whoever's stepping in to rebuild around and get this team back on track in a couple seasons. But obviously the offensive line is going to be the main priority. And what are they going to do with quarterback? They have the second overall pick. They're probably going to go out and draft a quarterback with the second overall pick this season. So build around that quarterback, but you have to get him an offensive line. Because if I remember right, Sam Howell was the most sacked quarterback in the NFL this season. I think it was a record number almost as well. He was sacked 65 times in 17 games this season. 65 times. 21 touchdowns to 21 picks. Which I remember in my preseason prediction, I predicted he was going to throw a good amount of touchdowns. I think I was around 25 touchdowns. But I also thought he was going to be high in picks. I think I said like 17 or 18 if I remember right. So he's kind of a gunslinger. Throwing some touchdowns, throwing some picks. Usually in a one-to-one ratio, some games, two touchdowns, two picks. And that obviously ends up being the reason he ended up with a 21 touchdown to 21 interception ratio. So the last head coach that was fired over the last few days was Mike Vrabel, who was 6-11 this season with the Tennessee Titans. This move is a bit of a shock. And what it came down to, I guess, was some miscommunication over the last couple seasons between Mike Vrabel and the front office. And I guess what it came down to is Vrabel's philosophy wasn't something that the front office really agreed with. And that ended up being the reason they ended up choosing to go in a different direction. And according to their general manager, Rand Cawthon, he said, our vision is not simply to produce more wins than losses. It is to regularly compete for championships. And with Mike Vrabel, they were competitive. They had a top three run defense in two of the last three seasons. This year wasn't a top three run defense, but the two years prior to this year, they were one of the best run defenses in the NFL. And over the six-year span that he was the head coach, they had a 54-45 and 45 record in the regular season with a 2-3 and three playoff record. So obviously the playoffs, it didn't really work out there, but they did end Brady's era in New England. Brady's last game as a New England Patriot was a playoff game where the Patriots lost to the Tennessee Titans in the wildcard round back in 2020. And it was Mike Vrabel who ended up winning that game. Former Patriot, former teammate of Tom Brady, was the winning coach in that game. So there's a lot of buzz about Mike Vrabel coming back to New England and being the head coach here, but I think it ends up being Gerard Mayo. I know most Patriots fans want the Patriots to go out and get Mike Vrabel and make him the head coach, but I think with last season, the way things went, when Gerard Mayo was declining interviews for head coaching positions because he was probably preparing for this moment to end up being the head coach, there was probably somewhat of an agreement between Robert Kraft and Gerard Mayo where they probably talked and said, when Belichick's gone, you'll be the head coach. Just wait it out and see how things go after the season ends. And obviously after the season's over, Belichick's gone. I think Gerard Mayo ends up stepping in as the head coach of the Patriots. But I know Vrabel is tempting. A lot of Patriots fans want him because of his success here as a player. And obviously he's a good head coach and a guy that respects the franchise and knows what it takes to win. But I don't think the Patriots are going to go back on their word with Gerard Mayo. Clearly he declined interviews last season fed coaching vacancies for a reason. He didn't just do that out of nowhere. He did it for a reason to probably be the head coach after Belichick leaves. And here's his chance now to step in and be the head coach of the future for the Patriots. We'll see how things work out. Just because he steps in doesn't mean things are going to work out. The position he's stepping into isn't ideal. The Patriots have a lot of work and a lot of things to figure out. And that's why I think their general manager is more important right now than figuring out their head coach. But those two decisions work hand in hand. You figure out the GM and then they figure out the head coach. That's just how it goes. But I think Gerard Mayo probably ends up being the guy, considering Robert Kraft and him, probably had a conversation behind the scenes last year, and that's the reason Gerard Mayo chose to not go elsewhere and try to pursue jobs as a head coach last season. So ultimately, I think it's going to be Gerard Mayo that ends up being the head coach of the Patriots. 
I know a lot of people want Mike Vrabel, but the Titans did struggle over the last two seasons. They were 13-21 over the last two years. In the first four seasons with Mike Vrabel, they were 41-24. But the last two years, 13-21. In the last 25 games, they had tied for the second worst record in the NFL with a 7-18 record. So they were really struggling with Mike Vrabel. And that's not really saying it's all Mike Vrabel's fault. There were some issues, obviously, there. There wasn't really many wide receivers to work with. The offensive line wasn't great. There were issues with the defense. There were some holes there. But that team did underperform the last couple seasons. And even if Mike Vrabel does step into the Patriots, there's not a great situation there. I don't think coaching was the issue with the Patriots. I think it was more GM issue and decision-making from Bill Belichick in the draft and in free agency. So there are also three other positions that are open right now. The Raiders, the Panthers, and the Chargers. The Raiders fired Josh McDaniels. They were 8-9 and nine this season. They fired him in the middle of the season, though. Probably the end of the road for Josh McDaniels as a head coach in the NFL. Didn't work out in Denver and didn't work out in Vegas. Both of those teams were inept with him at the head coaching position. This was the second time he was fired midway through his second year. So it only makes sense that that's probably the end of him as a head coach in the NFL. The Raiders locker room rejoiced after McDaniels was gone, and they ended up going 5-4 and four in the last nine games of the season with Antonio Pierce as their interim head coach. So obviously they cared more and were playing harder for Antonio Pierce than they were for McDaniels. As for Carolina, they fired Frank Reich earlier in the season. They were 1-10 in the first 11 games, but they finished the season 2-15. But this franchise really didn't have much to work with this season. The offensive line was an issue, and that really hindered their offense, and that made it really tough on Bryce Young to make any sort of progression this season as a rookie. Had a couple flashes, a couple good games, but for the most part, he was getting hit, taking a beating every single game, and there wasn't really much to work with, not really much time for him to get rid of the ball. Maybe that's something that's going to be their main priority this offseason, is probably getting the offensive line figured out and also getting the head coach figured out. Two big things to success in today's NFL. Head coaching. Offensive line, defensive line, you got to win on the offensive line and the defensive line in the trenches. It's a big part of the game in the NFL. And then also a quarterback. Quarterback's probably the most important position on the field, but both the offensive line and defensive line can really alter a game. And Carolina needs more help in the offensive line. Their defense does have a couple nice building blocks like Derrick Brown, but there are definitely some issues on the offensive line that have to get fixed. As for the Chargers, they fired Brandon Staley midway through December. They finished the season 5-12. and 12. I already talked about Brandon Staley getting fired, but this had to be done for the Chargers. Staley just made mistake after mistake, the same mistakes week in and week out, and he was costing the franchise some wins. Obviously last year, losing a game where they were up 27-0 in the playoffs over Jacksonville, that's right there a reason to fire him, losing a game like that when you're up 27-0 almost at halftime. It made sense for this franchise to move in a different direction. I think they're going to be much better off now going with a different head coach who's not going to make the same mistake week in and week out. So now I'm going to look at the most desirable head coaching vacancies right now in the, in the NFL. There are eight head coaching vacancies. I'm going to list them one through eight and where I think each of these positions land of where is most desired to least desired. Right now, 25% of the league needs a head coach. I'm going to start off with number one being the Atlanta Falcons. They have $37 million in cap space. They have the eighth overall pick and a talented offense. They probably still need to add another receiver in the draft or in free agency. I'd say probably add two wide receivers, maybe one in free agency and then one in the draft. But they have Bijan Robinson as the running back, Kyle Pitts, Drake London, and also a good and rising defense as well. They still need to get the quarterback. That's obviously a big question mark. Who's going to be their quarterback? They have the eighth overall pick. They're in prime position to get a guy like Michael Penix. I know we had a tough game versus Michigan. I still have confidence that he's the most NFL-ready quarterback in this draft. But if Atlanta can get a quarterback and figure out the head coach, 
which those are two big question marks. I'm not saying it's easy to figure those things out. I think they're going to be a big contender in the NFC next season. If they can get the head coach figured out and get a quarterback that's ready to play right away, whether it's getting a quarterback in the draft, letting that guy sit for six, eight, ten games, and having a stopgap in there, a guy like Tyrod Taylor, just to play some games while the rookie quarterback is developing and learning film, that's obviously going to be something they're going to have to figure out. What are they going to do with quarterback? They do have a strong offensive line. That's one thing you can build around. They have a strong offensive line with all of their starters returning and a stronger defense this year than they've had in years past. With some good additions to the defensive line over the last couple seasons. Getting Calais Campbell in free agency was great. Adding Jesse Bates to their secondary was good. With the right coach and the right quarterback, this team, I think, will be ready to roll and win the NFC South next season. I had confidence in them this season. That didn't work out. Desmond Ritter wasn't the answer quarterback. Go out and get a quarterback. Get the head coach figured out. I think that team can win the division next year. At number two, I have the Washington Commanders. And this is a desirable location for a head coach that's looking to really build two or three years down the line. This team's going to struggle for another season or two. But if you're looking for a team that's going to be strong within two or three years and have a lot to build around, the Commanders do have a lot to build around assets-wise. The second overall pick, $86 million in cap space, which is number one in the NFL, and three picks in the top 40 of this year's draft, with six in the top 100. Six starters, basically, they're going to draft in the top 100 picks. And if they want to trade up at any point, from the second round to the first round, wherever it may be, they could do so with all of those picks. It's going to be a building year next year for them, but they have a lot of assets and a lot of money to build around, and that's why once they figure things out, a quarterback and head coach, this team will be ready to roll probably two or three years from now. They're still going to have some growing pains over the next couple of seasons. The offensive line is a major issue. Probably something they're going to have to address mostly in free agency. Go and get guys that are proven right away. That's going to be a lot of the money they spend. Probably two offensive linemen in free agency, and maybe with one of those top 40 picks, go out and get an offensive lineman as well. At number three, I have the Los Angeles Chargers. They have the fifth overall pick in this year's draft, but they're also $34 million under the cap right now, which is ways to work around the cap space in the NFL and get under the cap, but $34 million under the cap right now is tough. They have a talented roster, with that being said, a lot of studs on defense, but they're going to have to move on from one of Mike Williams or Keenan Allen. I think it ends up being Mike Williams, and they're probably going to have to move on from someone on that defense as well, which is going to be some tough decisions for whoever steps in as their GM, since they got rid of Tom Telesco as well, who was their GM before getting fired at the same time that they got rid of Brandon Staley. But I've thought for years that Brandon Staley was holding that team back. There's a lot of talent. You have a guy like Keenan Allen. You have Justin Herbert. You have Khalil Mack. You have Joey Boza. I know there's been some injuries they've been dealing with, but there's a lot of talent on that roster, including Derwin James as well. So once they figure out the head coach and maybe get some help on that offensive line, which I think the offensive line is going to be something they're going to have to address, whether it's a first or second round, I think that team will be ready to roll as well. At number four, we have the Las Vegas Raiders, who have $55 million in cap space right now, which is ninth best in the NFL, and they have the 13th overall pick. They have some good pieces to build around. Max Crosby, one of the best pass rushers in the NFL. Devontae Adams, still one of the best wide receivers in the NFL in my eyes. A defense that played hard to end the season. They ended up going 3-1 in one of the last four games with eight takeaways over that four-game stretch. The defense really played tough towards the end of the season. They still need to figure out their quarterback position, though. But finishing the year 3-1 in one of the last four games and beating the Chiefs, that's a great way to go into the offseason. At fifth, I have the Patriots, who have the third overall pick, $75 million in cap space to work with, but they do have a lot of holes to figure out, like the offensive line, like quarterback, and their skill position group. Wide receiver is a major need on this team. And even running back as well, I'd say, since they're probably going to have to go and add somebody to pair next to Ramondre Stevenson 
since who knows if Ezekiel Elliott is going to be back for another year with them. But they have a lot of money to work with. $75 million of cap space, the third overall pick, the highest pick of my entire lifetime, the third overall pick for the Patriots. That's something I'm used to as a Giants fan. I'm used to us having a top 10 pick. Patriots fans are never used to drafting this high. When they drafted Mac Jones with the 15th overall pick, that was something that was unprecedented. But they honestly need the third overall pick. They need to go and get their quarterback that they're going to build around. And obviously the money's going to help as well. And I think it ends up being Gerard Mayo who ends up getting the head coaching job for them. He didn't interview for head coaching jobs last season for a reason. And I think it was all in preparation to take over at some point when Bill Belichick was gone. He's been with the Patriots as an assistant coach since 2019. And he also played for them from 2008 to 2014. He knows what it takes to be a winner here. And he also knows what it takes to get the most out of the guys around him. Whether he was a leader on the team or being a coach on the defense, he got a lot out of the defense as a player, obviously. And then also the last few years, the Patriots defense has been probably their strongest unit the last couple seasons. Definitely this past year and probably the last three seasons, the defense has shown up to play for the most part. At number six, we have the Tennessee Titans, who have $77 million in cap space to work with, which is second most in the NFL and have the seventh overall pick. They do have a lot of things to figure out, though. They need help at wide receiver. After trading A.J. Brown, they never really had that wide receiver that stepped in and was the number one option. DeAndre Hopkins stepped in, obviously, on a value deal. He was their best wide receiver they've had over the last couple seasons. But he is older now. You don't want him as your wide receiver one probably every single game. He's probably trending t- towards being more of a wide receiver two, even though he still is very talented. You're probably going to draft a guy or get a guy in free agency to try to be the number one receiver in that offense. And then, obviously, Derrick Henry's gone as well. They have a hole at running back, and the defense had a down year as well. There's a lot of things to figure out on that defense. So the Titans are at six for me. At seven, I have the Seattle Seahawks, who have just $4 million in cap space to work with. They have decisions to make, especially a quarterback. I think Geno Smith has one more year left guaranteed on his deal. We'll see what they have to do for their future at quarterback. But they also have the 16th overall pick. So they probably could add to their defense if they wanted to. And who knows if they're going to keep Tyler Lockett around for much longer. If they go in a different direction and get rid of him and try to save some money, maybe they use that 16th pick on a wide receiver. I mean, that's just me throwing that out there. But they do have some decisions to make and probably some guys to move on from considering they only have $4 million left in cap space. And then at 8th, I have the Carolina Panthers. They're a ways away from contending. They are far from contending. Probably two or three years down the line right now, I'd say. And that's at the very least two years down the line. They're supposed to have the first overall pick in this year's draft, but since they traded up last year to get Bryce Young, that pick is now owned by the Chicago Bears. So they don't have the first overall pick to help them out. They do have $40 million of cap space to work with, which is obviously helpful. They can add a couple pieces with that. But one thing that's tough for them is that their offensive line has just been atrocious. So that $40 million, I would probably use about half of that at least on getting two serviceable guys on the offensive line. You're not going to be able to go and get a guy for $25, $30 million. You're not going to go get a prime left tackle or a great guard or a great center for $20 plus million. You're probably going to have to split up that $20 million of that $40, let's say, if you use half of the offensive line, and use it 10 and 10 to get two serviceable guys on the line, two guys you can work with. One positive thing for the Panthers, though, is that they have an easy division, so progress can happen quickly. But they need to get Bryce Young some protection. That offensive line really, really let him take a beating this season. So now I'm going to talk about Nick Saban, who stepped down as the head coach yesterday from the Alabama football team. He's going to retire. He's no longer going to be a head coach at college football, which sounds crazy to say considering how dominant he was for my entire lifetime at Alabama. But he ends up going in a different direction. He is 72 years old now. 
He's going to step down from the game of football and no longer be the head coach at Alabama. But if you look at his tenure at Alabama, just pure dominance. Pure dominance. And when you look at Bill Belichick's era with the Patriots, he was just as dominant as well. So it's really difficult to compare these two coaches considering they're in different situations. College football, you're recruiting guys. Different teams just about every single season. Guys going to the draft. Guys entering the transfer portal. Figuring out how can I get these 90-so guys in this roster on the depth chart. And then for the Patriots, it's different than the NFL, obviously. Winning a Super Bowl is really tough to do. Which winning a national championship isn't easy at all. Considering before the cultural playoff is going to expand to 12 teams, it's been four teams now for the past just about eight to ten years. So you had to be one of the top four teams. And if you lose one game, you're likely not to get in, even though Alabama did get in with one loss this season. If you lose two games, you have no chance in the national championship. In the NFL, you can lose two games and you can still make it in to the playoffs and obviously win the Super Bowl. So that's the thing. But winning a Super Bowl is tough. You've got to win at least three or four games to win a Super Bowl. And that's what, that's what makes it difficult. It's not easy to do. But these two guys have been friends for a long time, Belichick and Saban. And it's really tough to compare them. They both had dynasties at different levels of the game of football. And like I said, they've been friends for a very long time. Saban was actually the defensive coordinator for Bill Belichick when Belichick was the head coach of the Browns from 1991 to 1994. So they go way back. They've been friends for a long time. And I'm going to break down some numbers here between Saban's time at Alabama and then obviously his time in college football overall from Michigan State to LSU to Alabama and also Toledo. And then I'm also going to talk about Bill Belichick's time in New England and then also talk about Cleveland as well since I'm going to give a thorough breakdown of their win-loss records at each level. Obviously Saban coached in college in the NFL and then Belichick just coached in the NFL, coaching for the Cleveland Browns and the New England Patriots. But let's compare some numbers. Saban at Alabama for 17 years, won nine SEC titles, and won six national championship games. Bill Belichick in 24 years with the New England Patriots, made the Super Bowl nine times, won six Super Bowls, and also won the division in the AFC East 17 times in that 24-year window, which is absolutely crazy. So there's dominance both ways here, and that's why it's a really tough thing to compare. In 29 seasons in the NFL between Cleveland and New England, Belichick had 333 total wins between the regular season and the postseason with six Super Bowl rings and nine Super Bowl appearances. And one thing Belichick always did well was winning one-possession games. He was 52-28 and 28 in games for the Patriots that were decided by three points or fewer. 52-28. and 28. And that did include the playoffs there in that stat. Per Paul Hembo, of ESPN. That's where I got that stat from. But 52 and 28 in games decided by three points or less, that's just crazy. Belichick had 333 career wins between his time in Cleveland and New England. He only needs 15 wins to overtake Don Shula as first all time in career head coaching victories in the NFL. So he's not too far off. He can do that on a good team in two seasons. And a team that's going to struggle, he could probably do that in three seasons. Which he probably still has two years left. If he can go to an ideal situation, like Atlanta, like the Chargers, he could do that in a couple seasons, 15 wins. Right now, I think Belichick ends up with either Atlanta or the Raiders. Those are my two destinations for him. I think the Chargers would be a good destination for him, but I think he ends up being at Atlanta or with the Raiders. It's one of those two in my eyes. Belichick has coached 49 straight years in the NFL which is actually 
the most consecutive seasons coaching in the NFL in NFL history. So obviously a great run out, almost five decades coaching in the NFL for Bill Belichick. Now you look at Nick Saban, 28 years of college football. He won 297 games, seven national championships, 11 SEC championships, a MAC championship at Toledo, and his overall record in 28 years was 297 wins, 71 losses, and one tie. 297, 71, and one. With an 806 win percentage between Toledo, Michigan State, LSU, and Alabama. He was 201 and 29 at Alabama. 201 wins and 29 losses with an 873 win percentage at Alabama. He won 10 or more games, double-digit wins, and 16 straight seasons at Alabama. From 2008 to 2023, they won 10 or more games. That's just wild if you think about it. There's so many moving pots every single year in college football. Guys leaving in the transfer portal. Guys leaving for the NFL draft. And he always retooled with the top recruiting class every single year. And he always found a way to get things figured out on offense, defense. And that team was always playing the best ball by the end of the season. Just like we saw this year. Alabama struggled out the gate. And then they figured things out by the end of the season. And had a chance in the college football playoff. They were right there with Michigan in overtime. Saban was never a fan of the transfer portal. And that's obviously been a big thing in college football over the last three or four years now. And it's obviously growing. More and more guys are entering the transfer portal every single season. So there's no loyalty in college football anymore. So that's one hard thing with being a coach now. Is you might have a guy that commits to your program, and then the next day they decommit and go somewhere else and go to a rival like LSU or Auburn or Georgia or Florida. It's tough to be a college football coach these days. But even with all those moving pots from year to year, and especially over the last few seasons, more and more guys entering the portal, Saban always found a way to retool, get things figured out, and get Alabama back on track to be one of the best programs in the country year in and year out. And he never liked the portal, so that's one thing that made it easy for him to say, I'll retire and probably just step away, since retooling every single year in the portal is obviously a lot of work. And one other thing that changed the game of college football was the NIL. And that seemed like something that Saban wasn't the biggest fan of either, at least from what I heard on ESPN. Saban wasn't a big fan of NIL. But the portal changed the game of college football over the last decade, and even more so over the last three years, and the same goes to NIL. Under Nick Saban, Alabama had more players drafted in the first round, 44 players, than they had losses over that 17-year window he was at Alabama. And that first-round total of 44 first-round picks, that's going to go up this season. Dallas Turner probably ends up being a first-round pick. J.C. Latham probably ends up being a first-round pick. That's going to go up this season. Kool-Aid McKinstry might even be a first-round pick as well. Terrion Arnold probably ends up being a first-round pick. So there's four guys that could be drafted in the first round of this year's draft. But that's just crazy. 29 losses and 44 first-round picks over 17 years. Just pure, consistent dominance year in and year out. And another crazy stat I saw today was that 13 of the last 15 national title winners either were Alabama or a team that beat Alabama. 13 of the last 15 national championship winners were either Alabama or a team that beat Alabama. In order to be the best, you got to take down the teams that are the best in front of you. And Alabama, over the last 15 years, or 17 years to be specific, with Nick Saban, they were always the team teams are targeting to try to beat. And we're always the team that players from opponents 
would circle that game on their calendar, saying, okay, we have a chance to beat Alabama and hurt their rank across the country while helping our rank. Because if you beat Alabama, that's going to be a big thing in the rankings. You're going to rise up the rankings if you beat Alabama over that 17-year window. It's just crazy, though, how dominant they were year in and year out. Nick Saban's last win as a head coach of college football, handing the University of Georgia their first loss in 728 days. Their first loss in over two seasons, taking them down and preventing them from making the college football playoff, which I predicted would happen, helping Alabama make the CFP by beating Georgia in the SEC championship, while also eliminating Georgia from the chances of competing for another national title. That was their first loss in 728 days. So obviously this is a tough question. Who's the greatest football coach of all time? A lot of people are going to say Nick Saban. A lot of people are going to say Bill Belichick. It's hard to compare these guys. Two different levels, two different situations going on across both leagues, whether it's college football or the NFL. But if I had to pick one of these coaches right now to win a game at their respective level, I would take Nick Saban in college. I think Nick Saban is the greatest coach of all time in football. So many years of recouping, so many years of retooling to stay on top. And with so many guys moving in and out year to year, especially over the last five years, he always found a way to stay on top. They were still competing for national titles even up until his last game as a head coach in college football. They were still competing in the CFP. And if you look at the last five years, they've had just about a different quarterback each and every year over the last five seasons. Maybe five to six years, I should say. Tua Tagovailoa, Jalen Hurts, alternating between those two guys at one point from one year to the next. Then you've got Mac Jones, Bryce Young, Jalen Milrow. He always found a way to retool and get another guy to step in and make plays. So it's a really tough decision. Who's the better head coach between Bill Belichick and Nick Saban? I think if you had to win a game right now, if you had to win a college game right now or win an NFL game and you were picking which coach to pick at their respective level, I think Nick Saban gives you a better chance of winning the football game just based on what he was able to do at Alabama up until his last game as head coach there. And lastly... A big question about Bill Belichick is, where is he going to end up? And I already said, I think Atlanta or Las Vegas. I think Jim Harbaugh ends up leaving Michigan. I think he ends up going to the Chargers. So that ends up being who they fill their head coaching vacancy with. As for Mike Vrabel, where is he going to go? I think he ends up in Atlanta. If Bill Belichick decides to go elsewhere and doesn't end up in Atlanta, I think Mike Vrabel goes to Atlanta. His son Tyler played for them this season, and they're in a good position right now to go out there and compete. And they obviously have a dominant running back, and a very skilled player in Bijan Robinson. And we saw for a few seasons when Derrick Henry was at the top of the game in the NFL as a running back, that four-year window, that Titans offense relied on him a lot. And I think Bijan Robinson could have a similar effect to that Falcons offense if Mike Vrabel were to be the head coach. It'd be a run-dominant offense, but when you draft a guy like Bijan Robinson at eighth overall and you have one of the best offensive lines in the game of football, you've got to take advantage of that. And obviously having Desmond Ritter quarterback is what held them back a little bit this season. Go out there, figure out the quarterback, which it's not going to be easy. I'm not saying figuring out the franchise quarterback or even the stopgap is easy to do, but that team can be competitive. I think Mike Vrabel ends up in Atlanta. So there's a look at a few of my predictions of where I think some coaches are going to end up. I think Belichick ends up with either Atlanta or Las Vegas. I think Mike Vrabel ends up in Atlanta if Belichick doesn't end up there. I think Gerard Mayo ends up being the head coach of the Patriots. And I also think Jim Harbaugh leaves Michigan and he ends up being the head coach for the Los Angeles Chargers. Anyways, that'll wrap up this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it. I hope you guys have a good one and I will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you.